Before we get going with today's show, a warning. There are some pretty scary parts to our story today, so if you're listening with kids around, you might want to put headphones on. All right, here's the show. Destruction is again threatened by Mont Pele, the volcano having resumed an activity even greater than that exhibited when Saint-Pierre was wiped out of existence. For 24 hours, the volcano has been in constant eruption and explosions have been frequent. Last night was one of terror and wild alarm here. The earth seemed to have lost its foundations. Up through the crater of Mont Pele poured a storm of death. At this time, nothing definite is known of conditions further to the north. Smoke fills the air, darkening the sky. Ashes are falling steadily. When the heavens are filled with lightning, as frequently happens, it can be seen that Mont Pele has not ceased to throw out a great column of lava and stones. There has been a perfect calm in the air, yet the waters of the Caribbean are lashed to a fury, indicating that the same forces that cause the volcano to labor are working tremendous changes at the bottom of the sea. Words are inadequate to describe the actual conditions. Disaster is expected at any moment, and in the harbor, every ship has steam up and is ready to slip cable and speed away. Beset by imminent and terrible danger, a party of officers from the Cincinnati and Potomac went ashore at Saint-Pierre yesterday and brought away the body of Thomas D. Prentice, the American consul. Advised to forsake their burden and save themselves, the men who were carrying the body refused to do so. On they stumbled through an atmosphere each second growing darker and more stifling. Their ears were deafened by the crashes that came from Montpellier. In the roadstead, the British cruiser Indefatigable was putting to sea, sounding her siren, which most of the time was silenced by the great noise of the mountain. Finally, the brave men were forced to rest their burden at the water's edge, while they made all speed for the Potomac. They were barely in time. As the steamship got well underway, another flood of fire poured down from Pele, and a broad stream of lava ran into the sea, while out of the sky rained a storm of rocks and ashes. When the San Francisco Call published this report on May 21st, 1902, the body of Thomas Prentice, the American consul in Saint-Pierre, Martinique, was just one of almost 30,000 bodies that lay in the town of Saint-Pierre. This eruption of Mount Pele was the deadliest volcanic eruption of the 20th century. The main character in our story today isn't a consul, but rather a natural force, a volcano. The consuls in Martinique are just secondary players. I'm Abby Mullen, and this is Consolation Prize, a podcast about the history of the United States and the world through the eyes of its consuls. Before we take a closer look at the eruption of Mount Pele and the human decisions that made it so very tragic, I wanted to let you know that Consolation Prize is all over social media. We have Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, 
and we'd love to hear from you on those platforms. We post a lot of extra stuff about consular history there, so you're missing out if you don't follow us on one of those platforms. For instance, on our social media today and for this episode, we're posting a lot of footage of volcanic eruptions that are very similar to Mount Pele. So if you want to know what this sort of disaster looks like, follow us and find out. Now, we started kind of at the end of this sad story. So you already know what happened to the consul. But what we don't know yet is why he was there to begin with. So let's back up a little. First of all, let's talk about where Martinique is. It's in the Lesser Antilles, the Caribbean. It's one of the islands that forms a vertical line up from South America close to the Atlantic Ocean. So one side of the island faces the Caribbean Sea and the other side faces the Atlantic Ocean. It's a lush and beautiful tropical island where the soil is fertile and crops like sugar grow exceedingly well. In 1902, Martinique belonged to the French Empire as a colony. And so all the direct connections the United States had had to Martinique up until then had been through consuls, rather than through an ambassador or minister who was in Paris. And this consular relationship was very long-standing. In fact, the first consul to Martinique was appointed, just like James Morey from episode two, before the consular service even existed officially. His name was Fulwer Skipwith, and he was appointed in 1790. Martinique wasn't a big island, but it had one thing going for it that the United States really wanted. Sugar. The world had, by the 19th century, developed an incredibly strong sweet tooth. And not just as we usually think of it as in terms of sweetening desserts and the like, but it actually had been incorporated into vast swaths of the, the world's diet. Um, and so virtually all food products today, but even by the 19th century, contained some level of processed sugar. And in fact, between 1890 and 1930, U.S. per capita consumption of sugar had nearly doubled. And so this is the same period uh, where the United States was starting to try to build its own sugar empire. Most United States sugar had been imported. And so Martinique and Guadeloupe, uh, really the French Caribbean generally, had been trading sugar with the United States going back to the period of old imperialism and slavery. That's Christopher Church, a historian of disasters and social movements. He told us that in 1902, Martinique occupied an unusual place in the French Empire, as colonies go. By 1902, the people in the French Caribbean, both white and black, were French citizens. So they had voting rights in the Third Republic. They had locally elected officials. They even had representation in the national French legislature but they were still overseen by an appointed governor and colonial administration. So the closest analog I would say today in the United States would be Puerto Rico, citizens of the nation, but not yet able to fully participate in that nation. Martinique and Guadalupe though, were also as parts of that older empire, the sites of French slavery. So they were areas of intense racial strife, strongly shaped by the legacy of colonial exploitation, but it's also the place where the people there pushed back and really tried to hold the Republican values of liberty, equality, and fraternity, trying to make them true. 
By the end of the 19th century, Martinique had even more potential in the eyes of many Americans because it could serve as a part of a pipeline toward what would become the Panama Canal. So the consulate in Martinique was pretty important. The consulate in 1902 was, as you know, Thomas Prentice. He was a career consul with many powerful friends in the government. Martinique was not his first post. He had served in the Seychelles and in Rouen before this. For some reason, in 1900, he decided he wanted to leave Rouen, so he asked his friend, Henry Cabot Lodge, to help him get a new post in Batavia, which is modern-day Jakarta, Indonesia. Lodge got the Secretary of State to agree to the appointment, so Prentice and his adult son left for Batavia. After they left, Lodge was informed that the president had actually appointed someone else to the post. Poor Lodge had to write to Prentice to tell him that he didn't get the job after all, and after he'd traveled all that way. He tried to cast the news in the best possible light. He had been able to get Prentice a different post, in Martinique, which was probably more lucrative than Batavia anyway, and just think of how much easier it would be for Prentice's wife Clara and his two daughters to get to Martinique, rather than having to travel all the way to Batavia. So Prentice and his son boarded a ship and headed back home. As the ship steamed back to the United States, Prentice could probably see Krakatoa in the distance in the Sunda Straits. And then he was off to take up his new post in Saint-Pierre, Martinique, the Paris of the Antilles. The paradise that Prentice was going to was indeed beautiful. But its beauty rested on top of a terrifying foundation. The most striking physical feature of the island was a mountain over 4,000 feet tall named Mount Pele. Charlie Mandeville, the Volcano Hazards Program Coordinator at the U.S. Geological Survey, told us more about the geology of the area. Mount Pele is one of the Lesser Antilles chain of volcanoes. All of the islands in the Lesser Antilles chain, they're really you know, the amalgamated portions of what started as submarine volcanoes that eventually broke, you know, the sea surface and emerged as islands and or amalgamated volcanoes that combined to form a somewhat larger island because some of the Lesser Antilles islands have two or three volcanoes on them. And uh, many of these, they've been active volcanic centers for a million years, or maybe uh, 500,000 years. People in Martinique were fully aware that this volcano could be a threat, but it didn't seem very threatening. Its last eruption had been in 1851, and even that one hadn't been particularly big or terrible. People even thought that that eruption in 1851 was sort of the last gasp of an old and dying volcano. So when the volcano started to rumble and make noises in the spring of 1902, people didn't realize the danger they were in. It did seem like something was going on, though. Clara Prentice wrote to her sister on the morning of Saturday, May 3rd, 1902. My dear sister, this morning the whole population of the city is on the alert, and every eye is directed toward Mount Pele, an extinct volcano. Everybody is afraid that the volcano has taken into its heart to burst forth and destroy the whole island. 
Fifty years ago, Mount Pele burst forth with terrific force and destroyed everything for a radius of several miles. For several days, the mountain has been bursting forth, and immense quantities of lava are flowing down the side of the mountain. All the inhabitants are going up to see it. They did actually notice that they had this rotten egg smell of sulfur gases present, wafting down the slopes of Montpellier. They also started seeing changes in the, the local uh, groundwater wells that they were accessing for drinking water. Sometimes a well would go dry for no apparent reason when it had water in it last week. Other times they'd see the Riviere Blanche, the White River, dry up for a week and then be coming down in torrents two days later without any significant change in rain. So where did all that water come from? The main kind of gases that are dissolved in magmas are namely water, carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, maybe a little bit of uh, hydrogen sulfide, and maybe a little bit of hydrogen chloride. So those are the main things that are dissolved in magma. And the things that have the least solubility, like CO2 and some of the sulfur gases, they're going to come out first as the magma ascends to the surface, whereas the gases that have high solubilities like water and chlorine, they'll come out last when the, when the magma is literally at the surface. The people may have also uh, noticed that maybe their drinking water tasted a little bit acidic. And the reason that's happening is because gases coming out of the magma like SO2 and CO2 and hydrogen chloride, they're literally acidifying the local groundwater, which the people are drinking. So changes in just the taste of your groundwater is telling you that something is happening in the subsurface. And then, and then, you know, there's accounts of all the animals being scared away from the summit of the volcano on Montpellier, uh, you know, during the April to May timeframe uh, before May 8th. And that's naturally going to happen because the earthquakes are being felt by the local animals. The changes in groundwater are being felt by the local animals. The acidification of the groundwater is being sensed by the local animals. And they're migrating downslope to get away from it. The city is covered with ashes and clouds of smoke have been over our heads for the past five days. The smell of sulfur is so strong that horses on the streets stop and snort, and some of them are obliged to give up, drop in their harness, and die from suffocation. Many of the people are obliged to wear white handkerchiefs over their faces to protect them from the strong fumes of sulfur. My husband assures me that there is no immediate danger, and when there is the least particle of danger, we will leave the place. There is an American schooner, the E.J. Morse, in the harbor, and it will remain here for at least two weeks. If the volcano becomes very bad, we shall embark at once and go out to sea. Despite all these clear warning signs that something was going to happen, very few people actually left St. Pierre or the island. In part, this was because the only scientist in the area said that it was safe. He had no training in volcanology, which wasn't even really a thing yet. He was basically a high school science teacher. But his word convinced the local officials that everything was going to be okay if people just sheltered in the right place. Leading up to the eruptions, 
officials thinking of this main risk of lava, they positioned Saint-Pierre as a safe haven. This was actually a myth that was deeply bound up in French colonialism because the French culture of colonialism was that they were bringing civilization to otherwise harsh environments. And so since Saint-Pierre was the, the Paris of the Lesser Antilles, or the little Paris of the Antilles, it was seen as this kind of European safeguard or bulwark against a dangerous environment around. And so the thinking was that if everyone sheltered in the city, if everyone got out of the countryside and evacuated, then they would be safe. There were about just shy of 30,000 people who had been collected from all over the countryside. In fact, the governor, Louis Moutet, even organized military details to patrol the roads to force people into the city and made a point of staying there himself to prove to everyone this is the safe location. In fact, the awakening volcano became sort of a scientific and social curiosity. They actually organized picnics to go see the gases coming out of the top up at the base of the mountain. For about three weeks, this kind of fuming went on from, I think it was about April 23rd till May 8th. The mountain really began serious signs of eruption early in May of 1902. Again, despite these indications, including small lava flows and release of significant smoke and ash, very few people left the city of Saint-Pierre. And then, on May 8th, the crisis. In just a few minutes, Mount Pele transformed from a curiosity into a catastrophe. One of the things that we know happened, we had something called a nuée ardente, a glowing cloud, essentially emitted from the summit of the volcano. And these glowing clouds, they're really hot avalanches. And the hot avalanche is composed of small fragments of glass that are like less than two millimeters in size to existing rock fragments that comprise any, any rock that was present as part of the volcano that's being pulverized, and a mixture of hot gases that are literally coming out of the magma for the first time as the magma reaches the surface. And you have to keep in mind that these gases and small bits of magma, when they were down in the crust, say at a depth of two or three kilometers, they were probably at temperatures of 800 to 950 degrees centigrade, and that's essentially 1600 to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's literally glowing bright orange. And this material is all coming down the flank of the volcano as the hot avalanche, and it might be three kilometers to the top of it. So that's how big the cloud is. And the cloud at its base has some of the denser fragments jostling and breaking and releasing gas as they actually tumble down slope and get reduced in size. All of this is moving at a speed of 100 miles an hour. The summit of Montpellier was seven kilometers from the town of Saint-Pierre. 
and anything moving at 100 miles an hour is going to be on the city in 2.7 minutes. And so literally St. Pierre is obliterated by what we refer to as a pyroclastic flow and an associated ash cloud surge. And uh, I know those are mouthfuls, but it's essentially the magma that is breaking apart, releasing high temperature gases, uh, releasing volcanic ash because it's literally the magma that's blowing apart and being reduced in size to things as small as something that fits on the head of a pin to things the size of television sets, refrigerators, and dining room tables. And it's all hurtling down the flank of the mountain at 100 miles an hour. And because the gases that are coming out of the magma, they're still nearly 500 degrees centigrade. Essentially, when you as a human get exposed to that, your lungs are traumatized in seconds and you die from lung trauma. And then you're burned on top of it. So most of the inhabitants of St. Pierre were actually succumbed to lung trauma because in seconds they breathed in that very high temperature gases and they suffocated and then they were buried. The people in this city never had a chance. There were ships in the harbor that could have helped people escape and a few did, but the ships were in trouble too. Most of them were actually capsized and set afire. And we, we know about these kinds of things because there were several ships in the Sunda Straits following the eruption or during the eruption of Krakatau in 1883. And they tell us what it's like to see a pyroclastic flow or an ash cloud surge rushing past you, setting your sails on fire and covering your deck with a foot of you know volcanic ash and hot smoldering, you know, pumices and glowing pumices. And so most of the ships in, in the harbor at St. Pierre were actually overturned, capsized, and set ablaze. And very few of them actually survived. And the other thing that we know definitely happened because we've actually caught it on video following some of the Montserrat uh, eruptions of Soufriere Hills volcano is this pyroclastic flow, this hot glowing cloud, when it reaches the air-sea interface, it actually can skip because it's moving at 100 miles an hour. It's moving along the surface of the ocean and incinerating everything in its path. Less than 10 minutes after the pyroclastic flow descended upon the city of Saint-Pierre, there was nothing left of the city. The people who lived there, the people who were visiting, the people who had sheltered there after evacuating from their homes and farms on the side of the mountain, they were all dead. Black, white, wealthy, destitute, men, women, children, it didn't matter. There's no way to get an exact count of the death toll, but the best estimates are between 28,000 and 30,000 people were just gone. Among the dead were Consul Thomas Prentice, his wife Clara, and their two daughters, along with the Vice Consul Amade Testart and his family. 
Testart wasn't killed immediately. He escaped from the land and made it onto one of the few boats that didn't sink, but he died a little while later from exhaustion. Historian Alwyn Scarth wrote that there were maybe two people who were in the direct path of the ash surge who survived. One of them became famous for a time. He survived because the room he was in was relatively sealed off from the outside world, and he had the presence of mind to cover his face before the gases and superheated dust could suffocate him. Where was he? In prison. After searchers discovered him a few days after the initial eruption, he gained some fame and he even traveled for a while with an American circus as a curiosity. Some people were far enough away to watch as the disaster unfolded. One observer was a little girl who was eventually rescued by a French cruiser. I ran as hard as I could to the beach and saw my brother's boat with sail set close to the stone wharf where he always kept it. I jumped in it, and just as I did so, I saw him run down toward me. But he was too late, and I heard him scream as the stream first touched and then swallowed him. I cut the rope that held the boat and went to an old cave about a quarter of a mile away, where we girls used to play pirates. But before I got there, I looked back and the whole side of the mountain, which was near the town, seemed to open and boil down on the screaming thousands. I was burned a good deal by stones and ashes that came flying about the boat, but I got into the cave. The eruptions kept going for many weeks after the first blast on May 8th, but the survivors on the island needed help immediately. Rescue and relief efforts got underway as soon as the tragedy was known, both in France and elsewhere in the world. It gets cast as largely a national emergency. And so most of the aid, the vast majority of it comes from mainland France, with some of it coming from Francophone colonies. The French end up organizing large fundraising campaigns to get donations from everyday people. They also pass a bunch of legislative measures to appropriate special budgets for Martinique to, to help pay stipends to people uh, and to help rebuild although there's a whole debate about where to rebuild and how. They saw this as an attack on the very notions of French civilization abroad and really the civilizing mission, their whole ethos for colonialism. If French civilization couldn't protect against this, what good is French civilization? Like people really soul searching about what this meant for the lie they've essentially been telling themselves that they're bringing you know, the cornucopia of, of civilization to all of the world's people, and they're really doing good work. And yet, in literally minutes, 30,000 people are dead, precisely because they were sheltering in the structures that the French had built as a bulwark against the environment. The United States also wanted to help. They had lost one of their own, after all. And perhaps more importantly, they needed Martinique to be back up and running if their plans for Caribbean dominance were going to happen. In a little over a month, a new consul, John Franklin Jewell, was dispatched to the island, where presumably his main job would be to help with the relief effort. One former consul wrote to beg Americans to contribute to the relief effort. Martinique, prior to its destruction, was the nearest approach to any idea we could have of the Garden of Eden. Alas, like all things earthly, its beauty was evanescent. It has passed away, 
and while I sigh for its destruction, I am proud of the ready sympathy our great and grand country has shown in the hour of distress. I know that the generous hearts of my countrymen will reap full meed of gratitude from that poor, impoverished people. Private citizens from the United States contributed to the cause. For instance, Levi Strauss, the jeans guy, gave $500. But the U.S. government also got involved. Money from the United States was really a drop in the bucket. But even though monetarily it didn't amount, it had a huge significance in terms of the chatter and debates, mainly in the French press, but even in official documentation about what to do about it. So Roosevelt got Congress to give about, originally it was going to be a half a million dollars, and then it gets pared down to like, it's $200,000. But then the reports in the French archives suggest that the majority of that never even got distributed to France. Most of it sat in U.S. coffers and then got rediverted to the Philippines two years later. The French metropolitan authorities weren't fully convinced that the United States just wanted to help. They suspected an ulterior motive. From the French perspective, it wasn't seen as altruism. The French were incredibly wary. In fact, in the words of the French ambassador to Washington, D.C., they argued that Roosevelt's attempt to help was emblematic of, quote, America's hegemonic spirit with respect to all dependencies in the new world. In other words, they saw this as a direct way of the the Americans uh, flexing their muscles in the Caribbean, so to speak. This was also the height of American yellow journalism. And so the French were very angry that journalists kept saying that Martinique would be better under American control. In fact, American journalists repeatedly pointed to Haiti of what would happen if Martinique was abandoned by the French and what you know they saw as the ultimate end point of French control of Martinique as a way of saying it. But if you came to America, you'd be so much better off. We don't have a lot of hard and fast evidence that the United States government was explicitly trying to peel Martinique away from the French Empire. But this disaster certainly happened at a time when the U.S. Empire was growing larger and larger. And with the construction of the Panama Canal underway, the United States was looking for ways to increase its influence in the Caribbean. The French did have a reason to be worried. The United States does occupy Haiti in 1915, and they stay there for nearly 20 years until 1934 and maintain a military occupation. So that threat of the United States occupying, in this case, a former French colony, but If Martinique did become a former French colony after 1902, I think was very real. But there were good reasons that Martinique's unusual racial and social systems wouldn't have worked well if the island did become American. In 1900, Martinique has its first general strike where wage labor workers on plantations and in the sugar refineries throw down their tools, set fire to some of the cane fields, But what's interesting is it actually gets resolved by a labor dispute law that had been passed for the mainland. It doesn't get put down as an insurrection. The American press flat out sees it as an insurrection. And I can only read it as a threat to the Jim Crow status of of the United States, that if you actually have Black French workers who are treated as French citizens, having French Black workers go on strike 
and black workers who vote for local black officials in the islands in America's own backyard was seen as an inspiration perhaps to people in the South that would threaten the United States, you know, post reconstruction where Jim Crow get re- reinstates white supremacy. So what happened to Martinique? Well, even while the French government was sending money to the island, it also kind of distanced itself in the years afterward. In the immediate aftermath, and to me it's one of the scandals of the disaster, is people were immediately thinking of, what if we just got rid of the island? And I think this is also where America figures in, because they're like, well, we'll take it. And that doesn't come to pass, but there's definitely a divestment from Martinique. Um, And this is again where I see the parallels with more recent debates about Puerto Rico and its state debt and financial problems there is there's always that colonial logic of is this colony worth it that is not at all altruistic. And those debates began in 1902 as the French legislature was debating cutting checks to help rebuild. And so Martinique never and Saint-Pierre never really got rebuilt. So after the eruption completely devastated the city, killed about 30,000 people in a fell swoop, uh, the city did slowly start to grow. So by 1922, there were about 8,000 people living in kind of Saint-Pierre and the areas around it. But then there was a second eruption in 1929. It never amounted to the full-scale devastation of a pyroclastic flow wiping out those 8,000 inhabitants. They were all evacuated. About 10,000 people at that point were evacuated but it dashed the hope. So today, Saint-Pierre's population is just over 4,000. So nowhere even near what its population was 100 and almost 20 years ago. Despite the initial impulse to just ditch Martinique, eventually the island did become a full department of France, like a state in the United States. And it remains so today. And what happened to Thomas Prentice? the American consul who was killed. Unlike many thousands of others whose names and lives remain unknown, Prentice's surviving family was given $5,000 in compensation for his death, and his name appears now on the American Foreign Service Association memorial plaque. And the U.S. Navy made it their mission not only to honor his life, but also to recover his body. We heard at the beginning about their first attempt, which wasn't successful. They tried again, and this time, they brought along a journalist. In spite of the threatening aspect of the volcano, it was determined later yesterday to make another attempt to recover the bodies of Mr. Prentice and Mr. Jap, the British consul. By permission, I accompanied the searching party, which was divided into two squads. One, led by Ensign Miller, went to the site of the American consulate and soon had the body of Mr. Prentice encased in a metallic and hermetically sealed coffin. Six stalwart fellows shouldered the body and started with it for the landing. In the meantime, another party, led by Lieutenant McCormick of the Potomac, had proceeded to the British consulate, about a half mile to the north of the American consulate. Fortunately, this was in view of the crater of Montpellier. Lieutenant McCormick saw a column of smoke and fire belch from the volcano, from the side of which a streak of molten lava flowed. Directing his men to make all haste back to the Potomac, the lieutenant turned aside to give warning to the party which was carrying the body of the American consul. For God's sake, boys, get to the boat quick if you would save your lives, he gasped. The volcano has exploded and destruction is upon us. 
At that instant, there was a crash in the sky, back of which it seemed as though scores of thunderbolts had been forced into one. As it died away, the loud siren of the indefatigable, which was in the roadstead, screamed a warning. The British cruiser almost immediately put out to sea at top speed. Without cessation, the whistle of the Potomac was blowing. There was another rumble and the sky was filled with lightning. Then as I looked backward, Mont Pele cast up a vast column, a mile or more high. Consolation Prize is a podcast of the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. This episode was produced by Abby Mullen, Megan Brett, and me, Brenna Riley. Special thanks to our guests for today's episode, Christopher Church and Charlie Manville. To find out more about them, you can check out our show notes at consolationprize.rrchnm.org. Fact-checking was by Deepthi Murley. Our voice actors were Scott Moore, Nate Sleater, Cindy Garland, and Maggie. Our music is by Andrew Cody. Again, remember to follow us on social media so you can see volcanic eruptions like Mont Pele. And thanks for listening.